Chapter twenty six of Memoirs of Napoleon Bonaparte, Volume three, by Louis Antoine Fauvelet de Bourrienne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Gillian Hendry. Chapter twenty six, seventeen ninety nine. General approbation of the eighteenth Brumaire. Distress of the Treasury. Monsieur Collot's generosity. Bonaparte's ingratitude. Gouillet set at liberty. Constitution of the year eight. The Senate, Tribunate, and Council of State. Notes required on the character of candidates. Bonaparte's love of integrity and talent. Influence of habit over him. His hatred of the Tribunate. Provisional concessions. The first consular ministry. Mediocrity of Laplace. Proscription lists. Convasseres report. Monsieur Moreau de Worms. Character of C.S. Bonaparte at the Luxembourg. Distribution of the day and visits. Le Brun's opposition. Bonaparte's singing. His boyish tricks. Assumption of the titles Madame and Monseigneur. The men of the revolution and the partisans of the Bourbon. Bonaparte's fears. Confidential notes on candidates for office and the assemblies. It cannot be denied that France hailed, almost with unanimous voice, Bonaparte's accession to the consulship as a blessing of providence. I do not speak now of the ulterior consequences of that event. I speak only of the fact itself and its first results such as the repeal of the law of hostages and the compulsory loan of a hundred millions. Doubtless, the legality of the acts of the 18th Brumaire may be disputed, but who will venture to say that the immediate result of that day ought not to be regarded as a great blessing to France? Whoever denies this can have no idea of the wretched state of every branch of the administration at that deplorable epoch. A few persons blamed the 18th Brumaire, but no one regretted the directory, with the exception, perhaps, of the five directors themselves. But we will say no more of the directorial government. What an administration! In what a state were the finances of France? Would it be believed? On the second day of the consulate, when Bonaparte wished to send a courier to General Champonnier, commander-in-chief of the Army of Italy, the treasury had not 1,200 francs disposable to give to the courier. It may be supposed that in the first moments of a new government, money would be wanted. Monsieur Collot, who had served under Bonaparte in Italy, and whose conduct and administration deserved nothing but praise, was one of the first who came to the consul's assistance. In this instance, Monsieur Collot was as zealous as disinterested he gave the consul five hundred thousand francs in gold, for which service he was badly rewarded. Bonaparte afterwards behaved to Monsieur Collot as though he was anxious to punish him for being rich. This sum, which at the time made so fine an appearance in the consular treasury, was not repaid for a long time after, and then without interest. This was not, indeed, the only instance in which M. Collot had cause to complain of Bonaparte, who was never inclined to acknowledge 
his important services, nor even to render justice to his conduct. On the morning of the 20th Brumaire, Bonaparte sent his brother Louis to inform the director Gouillet that he was free. This haste in relieving Gouillet was not without a reason, for Bonaparte was anxious to install himself in the Luxembourg, and we went there that same evening. Everything was to be created. Bonaparte had with him almost the whole of the army, and on the soldiers he could rely. But the military force was no longer sufficient for him. Wishing to possess a great civil power established by legal forms, he immediately set about the composition of a senate and tribunate, a council of state and a new legislative body, and finally a new constitution. Footnote. The constitution of the year 8 was presented on the 18th of December 1799, 22nd Frimaire, year 8, and accepted by the people on the 7th of February 1800, 18th Pluvieuse, year 8. It established a consular government composed of Bonaparte, first consul, appointed for 10 years, Combassares, second consul, also for 10 years, and Le Brun, third consul, appointed for five years. It established a conservative senate, a legislative body of 800 members, and a tribunate composed of 100 members. The establishment of the Council of State took place on the 29th of December, 1799. The installation of the new legislative body and the tribunate was fixed for the 1st of January, 1800, Burienne, L'Enfray, tome 1, page 329, sees this constitution foreshadowed in that proposed by Napoleon in 1797 for the Cisalpine Republic. End footnote. As Bonaparte had not time to make himself acquainted with the persons by whom he was about to be surrounded, he requested from the most distinguished men of the period, well acquainted with France and the Revolution, Notes respecting the individuals worthy and capable of entering the Senate, the Tribunate, and the Council of State. From the manner in which all these notes were drawn up, it was evident that the writers of them studied to make their recommendation correspond with what they conceived to be Bonaparte's views, and that they imagined he participated in the opinions which were at that time popular. Accordingly, they stated as grounds for preferring particular candidates their patriotism, their republicanism, and their having had seats in preceding assemblies. Of all qualities, that which most influenced the choice of the first consul was inflexible integrity, and it is but just to say that in this particular he was rarely deceived. He sought earnestly for talent and although he did not like the men of the revolution, he was convinced that he could not do without them. He had conceived an extreme aversion for mediocrity, and generally rejected a man of that character when recommended to him. But if he had known such a man long, he yielded to the influence of habit, dreading nothing so much as change, or, as he was accustomed to say himself, new faces. Footnote. Napoleon loved only men with strong passions and great weakness. He judged the most opposite qualities in men by these defects. Metternich, tome 3, page 589. 
End footnote. Bonaparte then proceeded to organize a complacent senate, a mute legislative body, and a tribunate which was to have the semblance of being independent, by the aid of some fine speeches and high-sounding phrases. He easily appointed the senators, but it was different with the tribunate. He hesitated long before he fixed upon the candidates for that body, which inspired him with an anticipatory fear. However, on arriving at power, he dared not oppose himself to the exigencies of the moment, and he consented for a time to delude the ambitious dupes who kept up a buzz of fine sentiments of liberty around him. He saw that circumstances were not yet favourable for refusing a share in the constitution to this third portion of power, destined apparently to advocate the interests of the people before the legislative body. But in yielding to necessity, the mere idea of the tribunate filled him with the utmost uneasiness, and, in a word, Bonaparte could not endure the public discussions on his projects. Footnote. The tribunate, under this constitution of the year 8, was the only body allowed to debate in public on proposed laws, the legislative body simply hearing in silence the orators sent by the Council of State and by the tribunals to state reasons for or against propositions, and then voting in silence. Its orators were constantly giving umbrage to Napoleon. It was at first purified, early in 1802, by the Senate naming the members to go out in rotation, then reduced from 100 to 50 members later in 1802, and suppressed in 1807, its disappearance being regarded by Napoleon as his last break with the revolution. End footnote. Bonaparte composed the first consular ministry as follows. Berthier was minister of war. Claudin, formerly employed in the administration of the post office, was appointed minister of finance. Combassares remained minister of justice. Forfait was minister of marine. Laplace of the interior. Fouché of police. And Reinhardt of foreign affairs. Reinhardt and Laplace were soon replaced, the former by the able Monsieur Talleyrand, the latter by Lucien Bonaparte. Footnote. When I quitted the service of the First Consul, Talleyrand was still at the head of the Foreign Department. I have frequently been present at this great statement's conferences with Napoleon, and I can declare that I never saw him flatter his dreams of ambition, but on the contrary, he always endeavoured to make him sensible of his true interests. End footnote. It may be said that Lucien merely passed through the ministry on his way to a lucrative embassy in Spain. As to Laplace, Bonaparte always entertained a high opinion of his talents. His appointment to the Ministry of the Interior was a compliment paid to science but it was not long before the first consul repented of his choice. Laplace, so happily calculated for science, displayed the most inconceivable mediocrity in administration. He was incompetent to the most trifling matters, as if his mind, formed to embrace the system of the world and to interpret the laws of Newton and Kepler, could not descend to the level of subjects of detail or apply itself to the duties of the department with which he was entrusted for
for a short, but yet with regard to him, too long a time. On the 26th, Brumaire, 17th November, 1799, the consuls issued a decree in which they stated that, conformably with Article 3 of the law of the 19th of the same month, which especially charged them with the re-establishment of public tranquillity, they decreed that 38 individuals, who were named, should quit the continental territory of the Republic, and for that purpose should proceed to Rochefort, to be afterwards conducted to and detained in the Department of French Guiana. They likewise decreed that 23 other individuals, who were named, should proceed to the commune of Rochelle, in the department of the lower Charente, in order to be afterwards filed and detained in such part of that department as should be pointed out by the Minister of General Police. I was fortunate enough to keep my friend Monsieur Marot de Worms, deputy from the Yune, out of the fiat of exiles. This produced a mischievous effect. It bore a character of wanton severity, quite inconsistent with the assurances of mildness and moderation given at Saint-Cloud on the 19th Brumaire. Convasseres afterwards made a report in which he represented that it was unnecessary for the maintenance of tranquillity to subject the proscribed to banishment, considering it sufficient to place them under the supervision of the superior police. Upon receiving the report, the consuls issued a decree in which they directed all the individuals included in the proscription to retire respectively into the different communes which should be fixed upon by the Minister of Justice, and to remain there until further orders. At the period of the issuing of these decrees, C.S. was still one of the consuls, conjointly with Bonaparte and Roger Ducot, and although Bonaparte had, from the first moment, possessed the whole power of the government, a sort of apparent equality was nevertheless observed amongst them. It was not until the 25th of December that Bonaparte assumed the title of First Consul, Cambaceres and Lebrun being then joined in the office with him. He had fixed his eyes on them previously to the 18th Brumaire, and he had no cause to reproach them with giving him much embarrassment in his rapid progress towards the imperial throne. I have stated that I was so fortunate as to rescue Monsieur Moreau de Worms from the list of proscription. Some days after, C.S. entered Bonaparte's cabinet and said to him, Well, this Monsieur Moreau de Worms, whom Monsieur Bourrienne induced you to save from banishment, is acting very finely. I told you how it would be. I have received from Sens, his native place, a letter which informs me that Moreau is in that town, where he has assembled the people in the marketplace and indulged in the most violent declamations against the 18th Brumaire. Can you rely upon your agent? asked Bonaparte. Perfectly. I can answer for the truth of his communication. Bonaparte showed me the bulletin of C.S.'s agent and reproached me bitterly. What would you say, General? I observed. If I should present this same Monsieur Moreau de Worms, who is declaiming at Sens against the 18th Brumaire, to you within an hour, I defy you to do it. I have made myself responsible for him, and I know what I am about. He is violent in his politics, 
but he is a man of honour, incapable of failing in his word. Well, we shall see. Go and find him. I was very sure of doing what I had promised, for within an hour before I had seen Monsieur Moreau de Vorms. He had been concealed since the 19th Brumaire, and had not quitted Paris. Nothing was easier than to find him, and in three quarters of an hour he was at the Luxembourg. I presented him to Bonaparte, who conversed with him a long time concerning the 18th Brumaire. When M. Moreau departed, Bonaparte said to me, You are right, that fool C.S. is as inventive as a Cassandra. This proves that one should not be too ready to believe the reports of the wretches whom we are obliged to employ in the police. Afterwards he added, Bourrienne, Moreau is a nice fellow. I am satisfied with him. I will do something for him. It was not long before M. Moreau experienced the effect of the consul's good opinion. Some days after, whilst framing the Council of Prizes, he, at my mere suggestion, appointed M. Moreau one of the members, with a salary of 10,000 francs. On what extraordinary circumstances the fortunes of men frequently depend. As to C.S., in the intercourse, not very frequent certainly, which I had with him, he appeared to be far beneath the reputation which he then enjoyed. Footnote. Monsieur de Talleyrand, who is so capable of estimating men, and whose admirable sayings well deserve to occupy a place in history, had long entertained a similar opinion of C.S. One day, when he was conversing with the second consul concerning C.S., Combasseres said to him, C.S., however, is a very profound man. End quote. Profound, said Talleyrand. Yes, he is a cavity, a perfect cavity, as you would say, Bourrienne. End footnote. He reposed a blind confidence in a multitude of agents, whom he sent into all parts of France. When it happened on other occasions that I proved to him, by evidence as sufficient as that in the case of Monsieur Moreau, the falseness of the reports he had received, he replied, with a confidence truly ridiculous, quote, I can rely on my men. C.S. had written in his countenance, Give me money. I recollect that I one day alluded to this expression in the anxious face of C.S. to the first consul. You are right, observed he to me, smiling. When money is in question, C.S. is quite a matter of fact man. He sends his ideology to the right about, and thus becomes easily manageable. He readily abandons his constitutional dreams for a good round sum, and that is very convenient. Footnote. Everybody knows, in fact, that C.S. refused to resign his consular dignities unless he received in exchange a beautiful farm situated in the Parc of Versailles and worth about 15,000 livres a year. The good abbey consoled himself for no longer forming a third of the republican sovereignty by making himself at home in the ancient domain of the kings of France. Bonaparte occupied, at the little Luxembourg, the apartments on the ground floor, which lie to the right on entering from the Rue de Vaugirard. His cabinet was close to a private staircase, which conducted me to the first floor, where Josephine dwelt. My apartment was above. 
after breakfast which was served at ten o'clock bonaparte would converse for a few moments with his usual guests that is to say his aide-de-camp the persons he invited and myself who never left him he was also visited very often by de ferme regnaud of the town of saint jean d'angely boulet de la merte monge and berbe who were with his brothers joseph and lucien those whom he most delighted to see he conversed familiarly with them Combeseres generally came at midday and stayed some time with him often a whole hour lebrun visited but seldom notwithstanding his elevation his character remained unaltered and bonaparte considered him too moderate because he always opposed his ambitious views and his plans to usurp power when bonaparte left the breakfast-table it was seldom that he did not add after bidding josephine and her daughter hortense good day come bourrienne come let us to work after the morning audiences i stayed with bonaparte all the day either reading to him or writing to his dictation three or four times in the week he would go to the council on his way to the hall of deliberation he was obliged to cross the courtyard of the little luxembourg and ascend the grand staircase this always vexed him and the more so as the weather was very bad at the time this annoyance continued until the twenty fifth of december and it was with much satisfaction that he saw himself quit of it after leaving the council he used to enter his cabinet singing and god knows how wretchedly he sung he examined whatever work he had ordered to be done signed documents stretched himself in his armchair and read the letters of the preceding day and the publications of the morning when there was no counsel he remained in his cabinet conversed with me always sang and cut according to custom the arm of his chair giving himself sometimes quite the air of a great boy then all at once starting up he would describe a plan for the erection of a monument or dictate some of those extraordinary productions which astonished and dismayed the world he often became again the same man who under the walls of st jean d'arc had dreamed of an empire worthy his ambition at five o'clock dinner was served up when that was over the first consul went upstairs to josephine's apartments where he commonly received the visits of the ministers he was always pleased to see among the number the minister of foreign affairs especially since the portfolio of that department had been entrusted to the hands of m de talleyrand at midnight and often sooner he gave the signal for retiring by saying in a hasty manner allons nous coucher it was at the luxembourg in the salons of which the adorable josephine so well performed the honours that the word madame came again into use this first return towards the old french politeness was startling to some susceptible republicans but things were soon carried farther at the tuileries by the introduction of votre altesse on occasions of state ceremony and monseigneur in the family circle if on the one hand bonaparte did not like the men of the revolution on the other he dreaded still more the partisans of the bourbon on the mere mention of the name of those princes he experienced a kind of inward alarm 
and he often spoke of the necessity of raising a wall of brass between France and them. To this feeling, no doubt, must be attributed certain nominations, and the spirit of some recommendations contained in the notes with which he was supplied on the characters of candidates, and which, for ready reference, were arranged alphabetically. Some of the notes just mentioned were in the handwriting of Regnault de Saint-Jean-d'Angely, and some in Lucien Bonaparte's. Footnote. Among them was the following, under the title of General Observations. Quote, in choosing among the men who were members of the Constituent Assembly, it is necessary to be on guard against the Orléans party, which is not altogether a chimera, and may one day or other prove dangerous. There is no doubt that the partisans of that family are intriguing secretly, and among many other proofs of this fact, the following is a striking one. The journal called the Aristarg, which undisguisedly supports royalism, is conducted by a man of the name of Voidel, one of the hottest patriots of the revolution. He was for several months president of the committee of inquiry, which caused the Marquis de Favras to be arrested and hanged, and gave so much uneasiness to the court. There was no one in the constituent assembly more hateful to the court than Voidel, so much on account of his violence as for his connection with the Duke of Orléans, whose advocate and counsel he was. When the Duke of Orléans was arrested, Voidel, braving the fury of the revolutionary tribunals, had the courage to defend him, and placarded all the walls of Paris with an apology for the Duke and his two sons. This man, writing now in favour of royalism, can have no other object than to advance a member of the Orléans family to the throne. End quote. Burienne. End footnote. At the commencement of the First Consul's administration, though he always consulted the notes he had collected, he yet received with attention the recommendations of persons with whom he was well acquainted, but it was not safe for them to recommend a rogue or a fool. The men whom he most disliked were those whom he called babblers, who were continually prating of everything and on everything. He often said, quote, I want more head and less tongue. End quote. What he thought of the regicides will be seen farther on. But at first, the more a man had given a gauge to the revolution, the more he considered him as offering a guarantee against the return of the former order of things. Besides, Bonaparte was not the man to attend to any consideration when once his policy was concerned. As I have said a few pages back, on taking the government into his own hands, Bonaparte knew so little of the revolution and of the men engaged in civil employments that it was indispensably necessary for him to collect information from every quarter respecting men and things. But when the conflicting passions of the moment became more calm and the spirit of party more prudent, and when order had been, by his severe investigations, introduced where hitherto unbridled confusion had reigned, he became gradually more scrupulous in granting places, whether arising from newly created offices or from those changes which the different departments often experienced. He then said to me, quote, Burien, I give up your department to you. 
name whom you please for the appointments. But remember, you must be responsible to me. End quote. What a list would have been which should contain the names of all the prefects, sub-prefects, receivers-general, and other civil officers to whom I gave places. I have kept no memoranda of their names, and indeed, what advantage would there have been in doing so? It was impossible for me to have a personal knowledge of all the fortunate candidates, but I relied on recommendations in which I had confidence. I have little to complain of in those I obliged, though it is true that, since my separation from Bonaparte, I have seen many of them take the opposite side of the street in which I was walking, and by that delicate attention save me the trouble of raising my hat. End of chapter 25 End of Memoirs of Napoleon Bonaparte, Volume 3 by Louis-Antoine Fauvelet de Burienne